Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we begin by narrowing the focus of climate change. We'll put the lens on our region. While we may feel we get a pass on rising sea levels, we have our own threat from the changing climate. We're talking about that and about how it's a lot closer to home than you might think. My guest in studio is Professor Andrew Hurley, professor of history at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, part of a research group that's been looking at the impact of climate change here since 2014. Andrew, good to have you with us. Good to be here, Don. If you would, give me some background on this group. I believe it's called Missouri Transact. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a a statewide initiative, and it's uh, funded out of National Science Foundation, and it's a group of uh, faculty and student researchers that are charged with the mission of doing research that prepares Missourians for the impact of climate change. And that covers a wide range of research across many different disciplines, different types of geographical settings within the state of Missouri. My particular role, I'm the only historian on this project, uh, so I use historical research to engage Missourians in consideration of climate change impacts. And I'm also an urban historian. So my work focuses in the city of St. Louis. Well, let's talk about the historical impact and some of the things that over the course of the last four years. Is the, is the project over yet? It's, no, it's a five-year no, no, no. project. We're in their final year. Final year. It's with a, well, give me some sense of the historical impact, things that you've found over the last four years. Well, what we've been doing is we've been looking at how and I'll, I'm, we, we, we talk about climate change, but really what we're talking about is weather. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how most people experience climate as weather. So what I've been doing is trying to put, put weather into history. Mm-hmm. When people think of history and people think of the history of their city or their neighborhood, weather is typically very – far from from their thoughts. We think of history in terms of major events that tend to come and go, wars, particular political leaders or technologies. The weather's always there, so mm-hmm. we kind of take that for granted. What I've been trying to do is say, well, the weather is part of our history too, and it affects and it permeates so much of our lives, and it's so integral. intricately integrated into the urban fabric and the history of urban Mm -hmm. development. So I've been trying to look at at the very local level and see how weather events have impacted urban development at the neighborhood scale and how urban residents have responded to weather events, both extreme Weather events mm-hmm. such as we've – in St. Louis, we've had a number of very severe tornadoes. Exactly. We suffer episodes of uh, prolonged heat in the summer. And we have other kinds of violent storms that are, are not tornadic but do a lot of damage. So those have been the, the primary types of weather events that I've been looking at, mostly over the 20th century. And there has, over that period of time, there's been a tremendous change in the way weather impacts urban society and the way we respond to it. Tremendous change because of climate change? No, no. (laughs) Climate change has been the least of it. It's actually change in the urban form and the way the landscape, the urban landscape has changed, mediating 
the impact of weather on urban life. Okay, I need some examples sure, of sure. that, if you would. Yep. <clears throat> so, a um, hundred years ago, we didn't have air conditioning. So, the, the way that we coped with heat was very different. And one of the interesting things that has come up in the research is that during heat waves in the past, people used to sleep in the parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you talk to St. Louisans who have been around a while, they'll love to tell you stories about no, no matter what part of the city you were in, mm-hmm. people would go to the nearest park and kind of camp out there all night. I've heard those stories. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't happen anymore. No. Uh, beginning with probably about the 1980s, that changed. <clears throat> More people began to get air conditioning. Now, it wasn't uh, an immediate uh, sort of transformation where everybody had it. But what happened was, as soon as you hit about the mark, about 50% of households had air conditioning. You didn't have enough people who needed those parks. And so you lacked a critical mass in those parks to provide a sense of safety and security. Mm-hmm. And so people began, were afraid. That had a, a very negative impact on those people that didn't have air conditioning. And to this day, there are still many households that don't have air conditioning or, or have malfunctioned units. And there's really no alternative for them at night to go and find a cool place to get some relief from the heat. So we, we have a heat, as I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, uh, can be fatal especially prolonged exposure. And so these days, the people who tend to suffer most from prolonged heat waves are lower-income folks. Mm -hmm. Why is it important to track this in a study that basically is looking at the impact of climate change in this uh, region? Uh, To track responses, social responses? The historical historical aspect of this. I think that... um, It's to put weather and climate on people's radar to understand that even though people may have a sense of powerlessness uh, regarding global warming in its planetary scope, there are ways that we choose to cope with that at the very local level that can be altered and changed through collective action, through urban planning, through the way we design our neighborhoods. So we do have uh, the power to change the way weather impacts us, and we can see that by looking at the history. So what kind of changes uh, have been made or could be made or should be made uh, in urban planning to accommodate this change? Well, I think the most important things are, and again, we're looking at, uh, as far as St. Louis Mm -hmm. and global warming, we're looking at uh, heat waves, heat exposure. Uh, We can design our cities so that there are places that people can go to get relief from the heat, whether they be built structures like cooling centers that are available in every neighborhood where people can go, or whether they are natural features, landscape features like trees and vegetation, much of which we have lost over the years due to a a very 
uh, in, intensive built environment that we've created in our cities. We've lost a lot of green space. Mm-hmm. Putting green space back into neighborhoods is a way to cool down our cities. Another thing that we've done that has uh, an impact related to the weather is the fact we replaced the green space with concrete and asphalt, impervious. Uh, off goes the water in a heavy storm into the storm sewers and into the rivers, and then you've got flooding. Well, you've just hit the nail on the head no. there. Uh, the way we've constructed our built environment has really reduced our ability to cope with extreme weather, both in terms of heat and precipitation. So we have uh, more waters that, instead of being absorbed naturally into the ground, uh, place much heavier demand on our sewer systems. We have uh, sewer systems that have a tendency to overflow and uh, cause flash floods. Uh, Flash floods really have only become a, a problem, an urban problem, in the last century, and particularly the last 70 or 80 years. What is going to be the incentive for people to be demanding more green space and more trees and that sort of thing now that they have their air conditioning? I I think it's multiple. There have to be multiple reasons. And I think climate change and an awareness of those kind of factors are, are not enough in and of themselves. So the way I envision this, this mission, uh, if you want to call it that, is to be able to aggregate value around landscape features and, and urban designs that will assist uh, in, in the urban response and the human response to climate change, but to provide other values as well. So if we're talking about greening, if we can create green spaces that provide beauty, uh, that can provide other types of services like food, contribute to food sustainability. We can have uh, multiple benefits, uh, relief from climate change impacts being one of several. Well, you mentioned food, and that suggests to me crops, and uh, that's another issue. I suppose that one of the things that you're looking at through this study is the uh, the economic impact of these uh, climate and weather changes. We're not looking too much at that because we're most of our research is focusing on on local urban environment mm-hmm. impacts. But that but you are absolutely right. One one of the things that if you look at the newspapers during prolonged heat waves usually have been accompanied by drought conditions yeah. uh, affecting the larger region, and that has driven the prices of crops up, and, and hence food costs do go up during those periods. So even though we haven't looked at, at that, that is absolutely a factor. One of the things that crosses my mind is the fact that uh, although science is overwhelmingly uh, in, in, in favor of noting that climate change is happening, there are a lot of deniers out there. How does this play into what, what you've been doing? Not very much, interestingly, Good. because <laughs> in the city of St. Louis, I think there, what, what I've encountered is a very uh, high acknowledgement of climate change as a phenomenon, a real phenomenon. There's not a lot of people, there's not a lot of climate deniers that I've run across in St. Louis urban neighborhoods. And, and polling bears that out. If you look at surveys that have been done, uh, tend to be uh, urban areas, and, and the city of St. Louis in particular, uh, most people do acknowledge climate change as a real factor. The, the, the issue that we, the challenge that I have faced and others concerned about climate change have faced is convincing people that it matters 
to them in a place like St. Louis. As you said in your introduction, we're not located on a coast. People in coastal cities understand what the peril is. It's harder to make that case here in St. Louis, but there are ways to do it. All right. We'll talk about some of those ways when uh, when we come back. We're talking with Professor Andrew Hurley of the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and we're talking about a current project that is taking a look at the impact of climate change in places like St. Louis. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Back to our conversation with Professor Andrew Hurley. So where where were we in this whole process? We were were talking about uh, how to convince people that climate change is something that matters to them here in St. Louis, being that we're not a coastal city and we don't have to deal with rising sea levels. Do we do it through programs like this? Is there something maybe more formal that might be done? Do we have to get the political people involved? How do we do it? What I've been attempting to do over the last few years is just going out to the neighborhoods and working with neighborhood organizations and different civic activists uh, who have an inclination and the power to make changes in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are so many ways that we can do this, and sure, appearing on this show is a wonderful Mm -hmm. way to get the word out there, but my particular approach has been working with groups who uh, who who can who are involved in planning processes in particular Uh, let's let's take it on an individual basis a a homeowner how how can we as individuals really make any kind of an impact if we're not part of a group well I, i think as as an individual preparedness is probably something uh, that we can all do better at uh, as with the prospect of more violent storms, increasing number of violent storms, uh, we face risks associated with power outages. Uh, It wasn't that long ago, people may recall 2006, we had a series of bad storms come through the area, knocked out power to 500,000 residents. Mm -hmm. Several hundred thousand of those were without power for over four days. We are so dependent on electricity, probably even more so now than we were in 2006. And that can be devastating, if not fatal, to people to be without electricity for that long. So as, as, a, as a homeowner, I think uh, just to be ready for those kinds of situations with provisions and, and supplies and backup. And, and really, it's important. And as, a, as important as the individual responses are, what makes a big difference is a, is a collective response, how a neighborhood can come together, how neighbors can help neighbors. That becomes a critical 
importance in emergencies, whether they're weather-related or, or otherwise. Generally, that only happens, however, after the fact, after there has been an event of some sort that, uh, that, that creates this desire to make change. Yeah, and that's, why, that's <clears throat> one of the roles I think that historians can provide yeah. is to make sure people do remember because there are plenty of events that have occurred in the past that now it's after those events and mm-hmm. we can learn from them. And that's why one of the things that I like to do when I go into neighborhoods is to recover the history that's immediate to that neighborhood. What, what has been the impact of storms in your neighborhood? Mm-hmm. What happened here 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago? This is not something that's remote. This is not something that happened somewhere far away. This is what has already happened in your neighborhood. I think it's also important to remind people that when we talk about global warming and climate change, it doesn't mean that it's going to necessarily get progressively hotter. The, the, the main impact is weather extremes, and that's where the problem lies. That, that's right. That's right. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we, and we've already had we, – we, we are in a period of, of global warming. This is not something for the future. This mm. is something that we've been experiencing for the past 100 years. One of the things that uh, has been interesting to me is just to go into the weather data on St. Louis. There's plenty of weather data. You can go online and look and see the different readings from weather stations all around St. Louis and to see what the trends have been. And you can actually see if you plot it on a graph – how uh, the temperature has gotten warmer in St. Louis, how we've gotten more precipitation in St. Louis. But, uh, but you're right. The real issue is the kind of the fluctuations around those averages, and that's where you have the dangerous situations as you have the greater likelihood of extremes. We have some callers. Let's get them into Wonderful. the conversation. We'll begin with Tony. He's calling from Wildwood. <clears throat> Tony, uh, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Good day. I uh, wanted to make sure... Uh, we mentioned Krakatoa Volcano in Indonesia, uh, summer of 1883, <clears throat> and in St. Louis in January of 84 uh, was the coldest temperature on record. And for me, that's just a great example of how uh, something can affect the entire global environment. Thank you. Would you like to respond to him? Well, I just said that was called the uh, the the year of no summer, uh-huh. and that was that was a, a phenomenon not just in St. Louis but all over. It was a global phenomenon as a result of that uh, volcano, um, and uh, that well, sometimes that's known as the Little Ice Age because actually the effect of that uh, endured for a number of years. Mm-hmm. There was that real cooling uh, period there, it's kind of little uh, nugget of weather history. Uh-huh. It's interesting. What is the worst weather event that you've come across that has affected our area? <laughs> I don't know how you measure something like that. You know, I, I think in terms of, of deaths, if you want to measure it that way, uh, heat waves have been the most fatal. And it's probably not the mm-hmm. one that would come to people's mind as the worst weather event. We had a uh, couple summers in the 1930s where – we had four or five hundred people die in a summer as a result of, of well, heat. I, I was thinking that uh, in terms of something like the flood of '93, which uh, you know would cost billions of dollars in property damage and some deaths as well. Yeah, that's why I say it depends on how you yeah, measure it. Yeah. Uh, floods tend not to cause as many deaths. It's property damage is where uh, the 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 risk is. Yeah. 
And we certainly experienced that then and since. Right, that's yeah. right. Let's take another call. Jay joins us from Normandy. Jay, you're on the air. Go ahead. Well, hi, gentlemen. Um, Professor, I was a little curious to hear your timeline. Overall, I think you're right on on everything you're saying. But I was surprised that you said the going to the park thing lasted into the 80s. I thought people got window air conditioning and all that kind of stuff really in the 60s and maybe late 50s that, that um, you know, that was pretty prevalent. But going back to your larger point, how do we get people to, to even abandon the car a little bit and not have to go through drive throughs and, and start their car and warm the car up for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or five minutes? They don't need to do that on modern cars. So I'm totally with you. We we have to do something about climate change. We see it all the time. Floods are worse. I've had a cabin on the Gasconade River for a long time where we see flooding repeated many, many times where 45 years ago my grandparents had it, and that never happened. So I'm very interested. How do we do these things to change behavior? Thank you. Well, you're putting a heavy burden on a historian <laughs> to ask that uh, question or try to answer that question. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any magic bullet answer to that. Again, except uh, all I can do is to raise awareness of what the issues are and to try to put it in a historical perspective to give people the kind of freedom to say it doesn't have to be this way. We weren't always. There are other ways to to design a city, to live in a city. And I'm very heartened by all the bicycles I've seen in St. Louis over the last few months since the bike share program has come here. How about the scooters? And <laughs> I've just started seeing the scooters. I don't know if they can. They must have come after the bicycles yeah, or maybe did. caught on after the bicycles. But I think that's just terrific uh, to just to see these all over over the place in the way that St. Louis has em- embraced. St. Louis has never been known as a bicyclist city, mm-hmm. despite some some really good efforts to create bike lanes. But it just seems to have exploded in the last uh, last year since the bike share has come here. In your conversations with people on the neighborhood level, have you been talking about that as well, how not to contribute to the overall problem, to slow it down if possible? Not as much. Yeah. And, and that, that's equally important. It just hasn't been my emphasis because I, I think that a lot of the discussion has been about that. And that – I think is probably something kind of, of course it's addressed on the individual level, but there are very, very significant ways that a difference can be made in policy uh, at, at uh, larger jurisdictional levels. Uh, what I think we have maybe haven't thought enough about is how is adaptation. And so that's where I've been focusing my research and efforts. Uh, give me a little more detail on adaptation. What precisely well, well, do you... Well, the things I've been talking okay. about, how, how for, for a while, environmentalists did not want to talk about anything other than what is called mitigation, mm-hmm. uh, reducing carbon emissions. And there was a feeling that if we talk about anything else, it's going to detract from our effort to reduce carbon emissions. But I think we've reached the point now that we know that that we're going to have climate change. We are not going to be able to drastically Mm -hmm. reduce carbon emissions to the point where this is not going to be a problem. So we really do have to think about how do we, as a society, adapt 
to climate change. Right. And I think we're a little behind the curve there, and so that's where I've been focusing my efforts. Well, and maybe going farther behind the curve, because we look at the national level, they're pulling back from some of these goals that have been established that's for right. carbon emissions. And there doesn't seem to be a real appetite in Washington today, these days, uh, you know, about dealing with these issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at the moment, anyway, very pessimistic about mm-hmm. what's, what's going on there. What is ahead in the next year for this group that you've been working with? Well, we continue to try to expand our network of neighborhood collaborators. And so uh, right now I'm in discussion with a few other neighborhood leaders on the north side of St. Louis. I'm not going to say anything prematurely until we've worked out agreements, but we're just trying to find uh, more neighborhood partners to work with. And when the project is over in another year or so, what then? How does uh, what you've learned manifest itself? Well, we'll see. I'd probably do some uh, publications on what Mm -hmm. we've learned. Uh, One of the things I didn't mention, which uh, I would uh, be uh, sorry if I didn't, was we one of the most important and exciting aspects of the research that I've been doing is to engage communities in the actual research. This is not just me sitting in some dingy archives going through records. Uh, We go out to the communities and have neighborhood residents contribute their own memories and stories about environmental change in their neighborhood. And we record those. We have people take pictures of places in their neighborhood that they think are important to them and then do a short narration. Then we have these video files uploaded to a website. It's called Place Stories, Missouri Place Stories, although it's, we've only been doing it in St. Louis. And it's not strictly about weather, but that's included in, in the stories people tell, is how the weather has impacted them in their lives, uh, even as recently as the last few years. And it's a way to connect the history to contemporary uh, experiences. So if we put a link to that website on our website, people can uh, just unilaterally, without having to go through you or, or the group, can put those stories out there? No, they can't. They ah. can, <laughs> but they can listen to them. Uh, we don't have a way for them to contribute to them uh, online. But we can. We actually go and we, with our little iPads around and have people record them. And then we upload them to the website. So you initiate the contact. That's right. Okay. We're going to have to let it go at that. I want to thank you so much, Professor Andrew Hurley of the University of Missouri-St. Louis, for being with us, telling us about this project, something we've got to think about more than most of us have, I suspect. My pleasure.